0: Good morning, I'm Emily Madison, and today's scripture reading is Matthew 19, verse 1 through 12. That can be found on page 8, or, yeah, 824 of your pew Bible. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is this the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: this on. Hey, I'm glad you guys are with us. My name's is Chris. Um, I wanted to start by praying and I realize we're jumping out of Colossians into Matthew, into a pretty intense section. It's a break kind of in the narrative, but um, it hits us in spaces where if you weren't ready for that passage, all of a sudden you're thinking about your own marriage, you're thinking about your childhood, you're thinking about college friends, you're thinking about your adult children. So I just want to honor that for a moment and just um, pray into that with you. Um, I don't think it's an understatement to say all of us have been affected by divorce. And I actually have a a list that I made this week with our staff of just folks in our body who your own marriage has um, not been what you hoped it would be. And you're you're carrying in your body pain and uh, regret and thoughts. And some of you guys have been uh, children of divorce. The very next section, Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. And so kids and students here in the room, and this may be part of your story from your mom and dad, I want you to hear that God sees you, that he loves you. Uh, he has what you need, and he's good. And he says, come come to me in the next section. So I want to invite you to come to him throughout the sermon as your mind wanders from place to place. Kids, uh, let your heart go towards Jesus as it wanders. And for those of you in the room who, again, maybe you're a 60-year-old child. This happened a long time ago for you, but it's still really painful. Uh, I was with a guy yesterday, and uh, he just said, I mean, I know why God says he hates divorce as he's walking through this space. I mean, it's a horrible thing. Um, Even if it's years ago and you feel healed from it, you would still acknowledge it's painful and it's not the way it's supposed to be. Some of you, divorce happened at you. Some of you carry regret for things that you have done that caused the divorce. And it's more complicated than that, but that's the way it sounds in your head. So I just want to acknowledge all of that. God sees all that. He cares about all of that. And I want to just ask him to meet us even as we just jump in to this passage. I actually think this is a really hopeful word for us, Um, less than like uh, prohibitions. I think it's meant to protect and to care for and to nurture and guide us. And so um, there'll be a warning to some, there'll be healing for some. I think it'll be reorienting for all of us, but um, would you just bow your head for a second and let's just take take a moment to pray and ask God to meet us, not just to understand, but to engage him. With where we find ourselves. Would you, would you just take a moment by yourself? Maybe it's your story, maybe it's the story of your uh, children, the you know, story of your parents, maybe it's the story of, of friends. Would you just pray for wherever your mind is right now around this idea of divorce, and then I'll pray over us. thanks for hearing our prayers. Thanks for knowing our situations. It strikes me even that as we try to make sense of our stories, you know things about our stories that we don't know. Uh, You have plans and you have help that we can't even conceive of. So we welcome your work. We welcome it right now in this moment for these few minutes. Would you minister to us through your spirit, by your word? Would you help us? I pray this would be healing. I pray, too, it would be like a warning and protective that you would you would meet us in ways that prepare us for the future. I pray, God, you give us confidence in you, not in ourselves, but in you and what you have for us in your word and the way you design things. I pray for open hearts. And a lot of us are going to just feel lots of things throughout the morning. So I just pray uh, for a very real sense of your presence, your nearness to us as we encounter all that. And, then, and I do think it's a hopeful word. So I want to just ask that you give us hope. We gather every Sunday to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf to give us hope, and there's lots of application to that reality, to this area of our lives, and what it means to live in a broken world. So we just, we just welcome that. We ask now for your help in particular ways, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, it was good to pray for you, and uh, sorry, man. I, I have people very close to me, my own family, um, like still in their 40s like feeling and the effects, and I know, I know that's part of your story. Uh, Jesus acknowledges it's part of living in a broken world. Um, so, so thanks for praying that with me. Let me quickly give you an outline and then kind of orient us just for a moment. I want to talk about the point of this text, and then I want to talk about the pattern Jesus shows us, really and how to respond to hard questions and things that kind of feel out of nowhere sometimes. How do you respond? What's the pattern that Jesus gives us? And then what is all this pointing to? So the point of the text, the pattern Jesus gives us, and what this text is pointing to. And, and let me just confess, I'm going to cut a couple of corners this morning for two reasons. One, we've preached a similar passage in Matthew 5. Uh, man, it was a long time ago. It was May 30th, 2021. We've been in Matthew for like a super long time. So we've taken some little breaks, but that's I'm used to the math. I hope we'll be done, Lord willing, sometime by July. We should round the corner and wrap up Matthew. Actually, we're on pace to journey with Jesus in these next two chapters to read and preach the text on the Triumphal Entry on Palm Sunday, which is kind of fun and totally by accident. I wish I could tell you in 2020 I mapped out this brilliant plan to get us there, but uh, just kind of God's kindness for us in that space. So we'll kind of keep working our way through Matthew. That'll let us engage during Holy Week, that week of Jesus's life. And we'll read about his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion on on Good Friday, that service. And then we'll celebrate in Matthew 28, his resurrection. And then we'll come back and we'll fill in some spaces where we just read that week. We'll go back and preach a couple of more texts. So, so that's kind of where, where we're heading in Matthew. But, but we, hit, we hit this section having already talked a lot about divorce. We've seen divorce actually three times already in Matthew. We saw it in the narrative of Jesus' birth with his own family when it says that Mary is found to be with child before she's married to Joseph. And the text says that Joseph, being an honorable man, was going to divorce her quietly. Think about not bringing shame on her. And the Spirit of God comes to him, uh, I believe it's through an angel, and says, don't, don't do that. I'm, I'm behind this. And so you see that first in the very beginnings of even our Savior's family of origin story. Uh, it's in a list of six little, cards. I tell you this instead. So you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, even saying to somebody, I hate you makes you liable. You've heard it say don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you when you look at a woman lustfully, you've gone there in your heart already. In that section, Jesus is taking the law and not abolishing it. He told us he was fulfilling it, so he's taking it out of the kind of air or the behaviors or the principles and putting it into our hearts. It's not just your outward behavior that God cares about. He cares about your heart, and it's in that little sixth section of the Sermon on the Mount that we see Jesus address adultery and uh, murder and then divorce and he says you've heard it say a man can divorce his wife and has to give her a certificate of divorce but I'm telling you if you do that you commit adultery we spent some time that that week just kind of walking through that but if the pattern is let me not abolish this but take it deeper what Jesus is saying is you've heard it said that you can just get divorced for no reason as long as you follow the law you're fine But I'm telling you, it runs much, much deeper into your soul. There are things about you made in the image of God that actually are affected by divorce. And so we spent some time there. The date, again, if you're taking notes, it was May 30th, 2021. If you're like, I want a little more of that passage. I walked through this one as well in Matthew 19. So I'm going to cut a couple of corners because we talked about this a little bit already there. But then we also see it again when we see John the Baptist's story. Uh, Just a few chapters earlier in the book of Matthew, we see that John the Baptist actually confronted the ruler of the day about his illicit divorce, and it cost him his life. So so that's the third time that we see it before we come to this section. So lots has already been said. So I'm going to kind of cut some corners because we've already said a lot. I'm also going to cut a couple of corners because of what happened to me last night. Let me start by saying I'm fine. I'm okay. Everything is fine. But I did spend some time in the back of an ambulance and in the yard last night let me tell you my story. And I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Everything is totally fine. But around 3 o'clock, I have some like, uh, you might call it addiction to caffeine. Um, so I'm just drinking coffee like I thought normally. My heart begins to race. I'm kind of watching it going, that's kind of weird. I uh, call a doctor friend, hey, is this, is this weird? Is this should be like this? Should have like no rhythm you can recognize. Is that normal? How does that go? And he's like, "Nah, it's probably not great. Why don't you wait a little bit? Do some deep breathing. If it doesn't go back to normal, probably wise just to get an EKG and check it out. I've got a family history of some hard stuff. I've pushed my body too far before and actually, like, gotten some big trouble with my own, like, my own heart. and condition. So I was like, all right, no need to be prideful. A couple hours later, still not feeling great. So worst case scenario, I'm going to go to the urgent care. Arco pays 35 bucks for peace of mind. That's an easy thing to do. Set my wife at ease, set me at ease. That's just wise for me to do. Well, I get there, and when you say you've got, like, cardiac stuff, you get to the front of the line. So they put me in quickly, run an EKG. Um, quickly, they come back into the room, and the guy's like, okay, hey, I'm going to be honest, it's, it's not good. And so the thing is all the lines, which you don't know what that means. I don't know what that means anyway. There's like four of you know what that means. But, but it, throws, it throws a code that says an acute MI on it, which I think is like, he was like, that's not a good thing. Uh, so, hey, I've already called the ambulance. One story later of a friend of his who tried to drive himself to the uh, emergency room and had a cardiac thing. Had, that was enough to kind of get me in the back of the ambulance. So the EMTs come in. EKG um, that they run is totally normal. But you're like, well, I've got this one kind of acute MI and then one that's normal. Hey, no need to be prideful. We're already here. We're doing this thing. I'll just go ahead and get in the back of the ambulance. They run another EKG in the ambulance. Totally fine. We go to Overland Park Regional, which treated me very well get there, EKG, totally fine. All my blood work, totally fine. So my little $35 stint turned into the deluxe package um, and got to like just have the whole makeup. So you might want to know that my kidney function is good, all my enzymes are good, everything is totally fine. I'm telling you that though because I normally like am praying through my sermon Saturday night and get up early Sunday morning to kind of finish and so went to bed early last night after several hours of this and Thought it not wise to just like wake up at the crack and get after it and crush caffeine to move through it. I thought, let me just change my pace a little bit. So that's a long way of saying I feel prepared to be faithful to the text. This may not be like super smooth, but that'll be okay. I think I want to give you the main ideas that I felt all week long. Full disclosure as well, I called Adam, I texted him from the ambulance, I came in just heads up. I don't know if you got like a pocket sermon you can do, but this may. <laughs> This may, go, this may be long. And he, he says, hey, I totally got your back when I got home. And everything was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was, everything was fine. Three EKJs later, after everything was fine, um, I said, I don't want to be arrogant. Like, I trust you. You could totally do this. But I actually kind of love this text. And he said, yeah, if you, a, if you had a false alarm, or if people had a false alarm, they would probably go to work the next day. And I was like, yeah. So I'm going to work the next day. After my, after my false alarm, I'm here at work just to kind of do, do my job. So. You would have been in good hands with Adam, but I wanted actually to walk through this passage because there's a ton here that I think is actually really beautiful, and, and I want to just address it maybe in a cursory way because of the time and uh, just kind of keeping my, my pulse and everything going okay. I really am fine. Don't, don't worry. I can show you my doctor's note. I'm totally fine, um, but I wanted to be wise. Have you had those like as a younger person where you're like not very wise and now you're in your mid-40s, and you're like, I just got to change my strategy here. I got to do this differently. Uh, sometimes that works out great. Sometimes it costs a little bit. I, I don't know yet, but I don't think like ambulance rides are like at the circus. They just kind of give those away. I think it's like something we'll have to navigate. Uh, okay. I don't think we have to pray again. Let me just kind of bring you back into this text. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the point of the text and then the pattern that Jesus shows us by the way he interacts with these religious leaders, and then what all of this is pointing to. And I think we can do that in a responsible amount of time. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 19. It's on page 824 if you're there in your pew Bible. Again, I'm totally fine. Don't worry. I'm good. I'm fine. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, And he healed them there. I want to stop here just for a second. Just zoom in on verse 2. Can you see the beauty of why Messiah came to heal? The way this trap question gets asked on the heels of that is so offensive to weaponize a theological kind of loophole question. On the heels of people having their lives transformed and changed. So Jesus came to heal. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to rescue. He didn't come to give more laws to bind you and hold you back. He came to heal you. I want you to hear that up front. As we're talking about the point of the text, it's not on accident that it starts right there. And we see there's some kind of transition happening, right? So Jesus has finished these sayings, and we should just stop and go, what were these sayings? Because it's actually been since November, since we were in the book of Matthew. We took a break for Advent And then we jumped into our Colossians series. So would you just turn back a couple of pages or scroll up in your phone to like mid-chapter 16. It's on page 822. I think there's a theme here. Um, Yesterday I actually listened to all of the book of Matthew on uh, my, my iPhone which you got to be careful if you don't get caught up in the story and just keep pounding caffeine all day long as you get wrapped up in that. But but it took me about an hour and a half on 1.5 speed. If you didn't do that, I think it would take you about two hours and 15 minutes or so, something like that. It was really good for my soul just to go from beginning to end and see the whole story. What is taking us like two and a half years to get through, just to see all of it in a in a moment. And what you see is all this teaching and miracles. You see Jesus proving he's the Messiah, promising he's the Messiah, demonstrating what the Messiah came to do so that He can draw people in to faith. And what starts first on the outside, even where we were last week, it's first outsiders that recognize him. It's people that are like centurions and women at the well and it's these people that you wouldn't you wouldn't first pick. You would think it's the religious leaders and the scholars but they're the ones who are struggling and having the most difficulty. That's pretty prominent in the narrative And we come to this middle section of Matthew. We see him changing scenes a couple of times. And we see he moves into the district of Caesarea Philippi in chapter 16, verse 13. That's not super important, except like there's a scene change there is all I want to flag. And that's the scene where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it and he says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In that space, Jesus congratulates him and says, hey, what you have here in this Understanding actually comes from God. God's the one who gave this to you and I'm going to build my church on this confession of who I am and what I came to do. And then he tells them, don't talk about this yet. It's too early for people to really understand. That's what happens next. And then in the next section, Jesus says, hey, I'm actually going to die. The way that I'm going to show my Messiahship is through my death, burial, and resurrection. That's the next section. And Peter loses his mind and says, no way. I'm going to keep this from happening. I won't let this take place. And now this one who confessed that Jesus was Lord gets rebuked by Jesus. and says, no, this is the plan. This is how Messiah happens. Again, I didn't come to give you new laws. I didn't come just to make more regulations. I came to make a way for you to be rescued and redeemed and saved. And that was going to take God himself dying in our place. And then the next scene, Jesus says to them, and not only am I going to die, but for you to follow me, you have to die to yourself as well. And you get this passage of you have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. So so put yourself in their shoes. They've been watching all these miracles, hearing all this teaching. They're coming to believe Jesus really is the Messiah. They nail the question of who he is. And then everything seems to turn on them. It's not what they expected. It's not what they thought was going to happen. And so, so you find now for a number of chapters this theme of them saying, I don't know how this is going to work. Because Messiah shouldn't die. Messiah should liberate. Messiah should rescue. Messiah should defeat Rome. Messiah should bring in his kingdom. And you can't do that if you're dead. I don't, I don't understand how you might actually do this. So after he tells them to take up their cross and follow, we come to chapter 17 of Matthew. And it's the transfiguration scene, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, what that means is Jesus essentially like peeled back the layers a little bit where they could actually see his glory. They could see his divinity. So they're wondering how on earth is this going to happen? Next scene, they, they see this is God himself, not just a normal man who came to keep promises and to fulfill prophecies. This is God himself in that space. And then the next scene, he cast out a demon so he has powers over the evil world and then in the next scene Jesus says again hey I'm gonna die I'm gonna be buried I'm gonna rise again and their minds are still spinning they can't quite wrap their mind around all this and then we get this really interesting story of Jesus again getting trapped being asked about paying the temple tax they actually go to his disciples and they say hey does your teacher pay the temple tax which there's a ton culturally going on there I'm sure we preached that like in October or something. You could go back and hear that. But essentially what happens is basically he says, of course he does. And Jesus provides miraculously for the temple tax by telling Peter, hey, go down to the water, go fishing. You'll pull up a fish and there'll be a coin in its mouth. Okay, that story is bananas unless it's another example of how might God pull this off. It's not what I thought was going to happen. I didn't think he was going to actually come and, and die. So now I have a category where I didn't even have a category that existed. I didn't even know that this could even happen. God makes provision kind of out of nowhere. Like, like in ways that aren't on his chart, that weren't in his paradigm, that didn't be something he was expecting to happen. Jesus is showing, I have means of grace for you that you can't even fathom. I have ways of caring for you, ways of providing for you that you can't even fathom. I have ways of accomplishing my will and my plans that you can't even Fathom. And this comes on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So Jesus has been showing this over and over again. He is able to do more than we imagine. And what he came to do is more than we imagine. He didn't just come to get us out of Roman oppression, he came to actually heal the oppression on the inside. And he has ways of doing that. So I'm getting you into the context that I think these stories line up with. Because the point of this passage comes in this context. Because the question is how on earth can we do marriage well? How can we do singleness well? How can we, in the next story, how can we do money well? And you'll see the disciples in all these stories stop and go, how does this work? I mean, this is the way it is. It's better never to get married at all. If this is what happens with money, who can do this? When it comes in chapter 18, right before this, about forgiveness, do you remember that Jesus teaches about forgiveness? And then Peter goes, okay, hold on, like, okay, like seven times or how, how often should we do this? What does Jesus say? No, 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 not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Man, how's it going to happen? How how on earth would I have the capacity to forgive somebody 70 times seven times? And he tells a story of the immersible servant, this one who owed tons of money, like incalculable amounts of money, and the king forgave him. But that Servant also was owed some money by somebody else, and it, was, it wasn't insignificant. It was like a hundred days wages. It's enough to put you under if you lost it. In that space, he goes after that servant and begins to, to choke him out, saying, pay back what you owe. Same language the king used with him before he pardoned him. In that space, we're confronted with this reality of the way that we're able to do what seems impossible is by receiving what God has done for us. That's the teaching of Matthew And it confronts how we think about greatness at the beginning of that chapter. It addresses how how we understand sin. Even the story of the lost sheep is telling us, this is who God is, this is what he's like, this is how the kingdom actually functions. Okay, I'm telling you all that on purpose because when I talk about the point of this text, the next section is about our marriages. So he's gone forgiveness, and then he moves into marriages. Not by accident, I don't think. And the question is still rolling around their mind, How does God pull this off? How would he actually redeem? How how do we have hope for the future? And to hear that God actually has made a way with this fish and God's fed the 4,000 and God's cast out demons and the transfiguration and he's actually forgiven all of my debt. All of that loads into their mind as they catch this story about divorce. So, So the first thing I want you to see about the point of this text is it's meant to be read in context of a God who is with you who can provide a way where you can't see a way. When it just doesn't make sense and you're overwhelmed and you're like, there's no hope for this. That's the context that Jesus gets asked this question. So I want you to have in your mind, this is a kingdom passage. It's not just prohibitions about divorce. It's a kingdom passage showing God's people how their marriages can actually be transformed. And then how their singleness can actually be transformed by the good news of the gospel and the kingdom of God. In that space, Jesus is providing for us a framework. I titled this Hope for What Seems Impossible in Marriage and in Our Singleness. I don't really title sermons very often, but that felt really important. I think that is the point of this text from the context. Okay, and then when you get inside the specific nature of this passage, I want you to see. Three things. Let's just walk through the narrative and you see quickly there's a trap going on. Verse three. The Pharisees came up to him and they tested him, saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now if they hadn't said this is a test, you might just miss that. It seems like a random question. And actually in our culture, it's a question we ask all the time. Can can I get divorced? Is it okay? What does God think about that? If that's the way it was being asked, that's a great question. But that it's a trap, that it's a trick, cues us just to look a little bit deeper. If you're wondering about divorce, like, man, we're a church who wants to walk with you. Again, you heard me like praying for people in our body. We have, we're in all kinds of places with that issue. But, but in the spaces where you're wondering a genuine question, God has a word for you. But, but there's something really distorted about using something so intimate and fragile and painful as a trap question. I just want you just to feel like in your body, like how gross that is to, to in the middle of a healing space, to try to test Jesus with one of the most painful categories we experience relationally. Our hearts are really hard. They're really hard. And Jesus steps right into it. And he says, haven't you heard that you created them from the beginning, made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, uh, but one flesh. What well, therefore God has joined together, let man not. Separate. Okay, He gets asked this trick question, and the reason why it's a trick question is because there's a passage in the Old Testament that they're about to quote that has been misunderstood. So let me take, keep you on the text here, verse 7. They said to him, well, if that's the case, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and, and to send her away? So now they're quoting Deuteronomy 24, verses like 1 to 4 is where you get this regulation about divorce where it says if the husband finds something unpleasing about her he can write her a certificate of divorce so so Jesus if you're saying they shouldn't get divorced then then why did Moses tell us to give a certificate of divorce in that space and then he says this in verse 8 because of the hardness of your heart God's made provision and allowance for regulating the brokenness in the world around us not an ideal situation, but God is, is real. He comes into the real world. He doesn't stand in an ivory tower giving laws and rules and regulations that don't fit your real life. He gives instructions about what do you do when it just goes wrong, when things go bad. How do you actually engage that? So he says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that's not the way it was. It's not the way God designed things. That's not, not creation. And I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality... And marries another, commits adultery. The disciples then were just dumbfounded. They say, "Man, if that's the case, if that's just the way that it is, if, if such is the case with a man and his wife, then it's better for them not even to marry. If, if you can't get out of this, if there's such a limited reason why you can get divorced, then it's better not even to jump into this thing, which is a fascinating way to respond to that. Jesus stays with it, though, and he says, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Eunuchs are those who have been castrated or have been born without, uh, without testicles. They're males who are um, impotent. So there are eunuchs who have been that way from birth, inter- intersex or birth defects. There are eunuchs who have been made that way by men. They're, they're slaves or they're prisoners of war. And so to come into a king's harem, perhaps, they would castrate the men. So they weren't worried about the kind of polluting the divine line or the kingly line from, from that space. And there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Those who have chosen singleness, those who have chosen not to get married. I don't think literally it means they've castrated themselves for the kingdom, although there is times in history that's happened. I think I would read in that the way Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. So this would maybe be like a, a metaphorical way. There have been some instances in history where people did physically castrate themselves for the sake of like singleness. Um, but I don't think that's what this passage is, is endorsing, just total side note and then he says let the one who can uh one who is able then receive be unpleasing to you if there's something about her that's unpleasing then a husband can divorce his wife some indecency is the way it's said and so that's a fairly general term in the Hebrew it has with it the idea of like nakedness or something indecent or improper behavior so there are um rabbis of the day who said nope this only allows for divorce because of unfaithfulness and marriage and then there are some who took that view of indecency and said, well, any indecency is a reason to get divorced. And I have here like quotes from Josephus and from the Mishnah, which are like commentaries on that day. You see in those spaces like if anything is found to be um, un- unpleasant, if she burns your food or oversalts your dish, if you find somebody better looking than her, these would fit under unpleasing. So in that day, what you have is a liberal view of the text saying, well, we're going to let this this little word mean lots of things, not just a particular adultery, but we're going to let it mean anything that you might want it to mean. And though that sounds sounds great, the implications are that is that you would live into things that would be dangerous for you and for others. So this broader, more Um, progressive view of the Old Testament text, these rabbis had now created a system where a woman could be discarded for any and every reason. Sure say, that's how people had used the text and distorted it in that day. So that trick question is really pushing on Jesus. Are you conservative or liberal? Are you traditional or progressive? Where do you line up with these things? It's totally a trap. When you get asked questions like that, don't take the bait. Stop and go, "What, what do you mean by that? Because there are places where Christianity is incredibly conservative and places where it is wildly progressive. Like for think about monogamy in marriage between a man and a woman. So, so don't follow kind of in the space of taking the bait. I'm getting on to my second point of that space. But, but there's a, I just want you to hear that. They're, they're trying to trap them. And with this thing that happened with John the Baptist, you can imagine too there are Roman soldiers standing around. It's just how it was in the day. So they're asking this question of, hey, what would you say about the Tetrarch's marriage? Is that okay or is that bad? Because remember what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his life when he said what was true. So what are you going to do about that? There's kind of a double trap in that space. Okay, it's into that spot that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He goes back to Genesis. And friends, what I want you to see that he does here is elevates women by narrowing the grounds for divorce. It may be counterintuitive to you, but because in that day, this broad understanding of the grounds for divorce, you could divorce for any and every reason, was actually oppressing people. And so Jesus steps into that world and says, no, 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 no. The heart of God is actually to protect. By narrowing down these grounds... Just in this one moment, it's not all that needs to be said about divorce. It's not all the Bible says about divorce. But just in this moment, I want you to see the heart of God in this text. The point of this passage is the Messiah came to protect primarily women, but it would apply to men as well in that space. We're in a culture where women were commodities. To hear you, you would never harm your own flesh. You would never divorce your own flesh. You would never hurt your own flesh. So it's meant to be a protection to the culture in that space, to the vulnerable people. Think about like the woman at the well. Jesus interacts with her in the Gospel of John. She's going at the middle of the day to get water because she's so full of shame. She's not welcome with the regular women. Jesus begins to engage her in conversation, asks her to go get her husband, fully knowing this is going to open up a conversation that's really painful, but he wants to meet her in her pain. and, And she says, I don't have a husband. You know the story, and Jesus says, you're right, you've actually had five husbands, and the man you're with now is, is not your husband. Okay, I want you to ask, what do you think the look is on Jesus' face in that moment? Is there this, like, scowl of indignation because she's not following the rules? Or does he understand five husbands? Okay, let's just say all those were deaths. Let's just say she's been widowed five times. Dang! I mean, that would just hurt so much. Bad And to be in a situation where you are now with a man who hadn't covenanted to protect you, he was just using you, makes you incredibly vulnerable. I don't think Jesus has his notepad out when he's doing that. I think there's tears in his eyes. The way Jesus interacts, even from this text, he's saying you can't just discard her. And so when he interacts with the woman at the well, he doesn't just discard her. He he wants to draw close to her. So there's a protection of the vulnerable in this text. The Bible is incredibly vulnerable pro-woman, pro-vulnerable, pro-elevating those who are outside, pro-lifting up shame. That's the way the Messiah came into our world. I want you to see that as the point of this passage. The way he's engaging with them protects. It also is a warning. By limiting down the relationship of how you can get divorced, by narrowing that down, it's not for any and every reason, there's a warning there. There's a warning to actually fight for your marriage. If you can't just get divorced because of any kind of unpleasant situation, then, then you're left with forgiveness and grace and mercy and talking things out and engaging with each other and get, getting help in those spaces. You can't afford to let stuff just brew under the surface. You have to actually engage it. But By saying there's a limited way that God's designed in the broken world for us to get out of our covenant marriages, is to say because it's so limited, you have to fight for your marriage. There's a warning in there. Maybe there's a warning to those who are daydreaming about divorce. Maybe it's been really frequent. Maybe it's something that haunts you every day. Maybe it's been something you've carried for decades. Maybe it's a brand new idea, but you find yourself daydreaming about what if you hadn't married this person and you're wondering about a future with somebody else or in some other situation. Can I, can I put in front of you this warning? God's word is very, very limited. We see a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that would give an allowance for abandonment as well by by an unbeliever. And there's a million questions of what if someone claims to be a believer but they're acting like an unbeliever? What if this abandonment is like abuse and they won't leave but they've functionally abandoned me inside the home? There's lots and lots and lots and lots lots of questions. I would actually put in front of you the context of this section in Matthew where in 18 is about the church and community and bringing things. If you can't resolve stuff, bringing that to the church so that they can help you. I would want to offer that as a, as a framework for us to not carry these questions in the shadows of our lives, but to bring them out into the light, to ask for help. They, they are complicated, confusing, painful questions, but they're things that God's word actually speaks to. So, so you see an allowance for adultery, you see an allowance for abandonment, and, and you would imagine abuse as a category fits into those some way. In that space, as you have these questions, if those are the ways God says you can get out of this because of the brokenness of the world. It's not God's design, but, but I'm trying to help manage the pain of the world. Those are like liberating, but they're really painful categories. And a lot of people get divorced not for those reasons, but for other reasons. And in that space, then it comes as a warning to us to actually not let things grow in the shadows. I shared this story back when we were in uh, Matthew 5, but um, that's part of my story. So I married my high school sweetheart. Dude, she is amazing. She's serving in kids now. I my mean, Adrian is phenomenal. Pound for pound, I put her up against anybody else in the room. She, she's amazing. And yet, our first year of marriage, because of a number of things that had happened, we found ourselves in a really difficult spot. And there's lots of stuff that kind of blew up in our face that happened to us and things that were happening inside, just being immature in our marriage. We weren't yelling and screaming, but I found myself daydreaming about divorce within our first year of marriage. So we're driving to our first Thanksgiving as a couple, and I'm on these back roads of Oklahoma on the way to Adrian's family's house. And I'm not as far as saying I want to get divorced, but I was in a space of thinking, man, if I'd married somebody else, this wouldn't be happening. This would be way easier. These conversations would be going. My my needs, her needs, all those things would be met differently. That's where my mind was, and it actually scared me. So I get back home after that holiday and sat down with a counselor and just kind of said, man, this is what's going on inside my soul and I shared this with you last May or October, whenever that was, Uh, the guy just said, well, do you have grounds for divorce? And I said, no. He said, well, then quit thinking about that. And it was like, oh, yeah. I mean, don't indulge something that I shouldn't pursue. I don't want to get to a place where I have grounds for divorce. I don't want to starve this thing out so we might actually get there. So stop indulging the thoughts of what it might be to get out of this and now take your energy and aim it at engaging your wife's heart. Repenting, forgiving, working on communication, digging into those things that are making this difficult. The warning of, hey, you don't have unlimited grounds for divorce was a healing and reorienting thing for me. So, So it's a protection it's a warning and it is a reorienting thing. The way the disciples respond to this, they're like, man, if that's the way it is, we shouldn't get married at all. Like it reveals their limited view even of what marriage is. If marriage can't please me like this and I can have everything I want, then maybe I shouldn't even have it at all. Jesus steps towards it and goes, oh yeah, that's not the point of marriage anyway. In the kingdom, it's totally different, which is why you don't have to be married to be fulfilled and full. That's what's going on in the rest of the passage. But we see that marriage is not about us. It's about God himself. And so to stop and say, what does this do for me? Or how do I feel? Or how are my needs being met? Or what's difficult for me? For that to be our starting place actually will only lead to despair. Because eventually the transactional game you're playing will expire. And when that happens, couples find themselves in a really difficult spot. But you took vows that said, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, When you can't earn what I thought you could earn, I'm still going to be with you. Sickness and health, when you can't provide for me physically what I'm drawn to, I'm still going to be with you. That's the way the vows start. Those are the things that go outward to welcoming something bigger than your own comfort or your own pleasure. There's a reorienting nature that happens in the point of this passage. He's pointing us to the reality that marriage is a kingdom reality. It's why the Bible will end in a marriage feast. It's why Jesus is called the groom. It's why he calls the church his bride. It's why Jesus was never married. Because he's longing to be married to his bride, to be united with her. And romance and sex and orgasm and covenant and the whole thing is all meant to help us understand how much God loves us. How much he wants us. How much he desires us. How much he chooses us. So this passage has a reorienting nature to it. It's protecting, it's warning, and it's reorienting. There's a ton there. I told you I was going to leave a lot on the table, but those are the burdens that I have for you from that passage. There's a lot there. Let me just say, if you find yourself in a situation where you're wondering how to respond faithfully, biblically, what do I do? Like, let's talk. There's people in this church who've gone through all the pain that you're wondering about, and we would love just to go slow, not offer you simplistic answers and just quote passages at you, but hear your story and pray with you and fast with you and ask What might God want to do in this? And would you not keep in the shadows those things that are now in seed form? Again, Matthew 18 is a context. There's this community part. If you can't resolve conflict, bring it to somebody that gets some help. That's a great marriage passage. Absolutely a marriage application text from the peacemaking passage in Matthew 18, as is the merciful Servant parable. To deal with your spouse as one who's been forgiven much one who's been forgiven an incalculable debt that you could never pay back, to start from that place as you deal with their liabilities and shadows and limitations, that's a game changer in marriage. Okay, that's the point of the passage. Could you just notice quickly with me the pattern? Jesus has asked a trick question. And what he does is goes backward into creation. We are in a space where we get asked a ton of trick questions, tons of I would, and the word's a little bit loaded, but let me go there. Like false binaries, right? The text actually says there there is a gender binary. You can't use this text about eunuchs to talk about transgender; it wouldn't fit historically. I'd love to talk with you about that more. We're gonna do a series in the fall, kind of giving some more space to that. This is maybe irresponsible, just like throw that out there, and you're like, "Well, you can't get away with this sentence." Like, I'd love to talk with you more about that. But, but Jesus um, avoids a false binary. Are you one or the other? And he goes back to design. So here's the pattern I want you to see. When in doubt, you go back to God's design. Jesus takes them back to the garden. What was God's ideal? This is confusing. This question is like so nuanced and it's so culturally driven. And there's a of backstory to it. Not really understand all the factors. I'm being asked to make a decision. How do I start? I want to go back to the design. And then acknowledge the brokenness and hard-heartedness. And things are not the way they're supposed to be. We don't live into the reality of the garden. We're this side of Eden. So Jesus acknowledges, hey, there are ways to deal with brokenness that are not ideal. Not the way they're supposed to be, but they're, they're kind of mercy. They're a kind of help to people in those spaces. So you start with design. You acknowledge like the brokenness of the world. But that brokenness doesn't erase the command all of that around the goodness of how he designed things and the idea of his coming kingdom. So the last part of that, you have to go back to the design because the design dislodges the dangerous distortions that we have. Going back to the design, it dislodges the dangerous distortions that we have. To go, what did God actually create? One flesh, equality oneness in a way that was beautiful, God stepping into our world in that space like like he goes to design. But man, we live in a broken world. Treat people and acknowledge questions and situations this side of Eden with the complexities of what it means to live in a fallen and broken world. That we're not trafficking in ideals. We can reference design, but we live in a broken world, but that brokenness does not negate the commands or framework that God has for us. Jesus stays quoting the scriptures even though he acknowledges our brokenness because he actually wants to see it redeemed, which is the fourth part of that. Think about kingdom orientation in that space. Asking how does this fit into the kingdom of God? What does it tell me about the kingdom? When he goes to spaces where they have their minds blown about why this is impossible, he'll take them to the kingdom of heaven. Design, brokenness, don't negate God's commands And look towards the kingdom as an orienting way. There's something about that pattern that I think is super helpful. Because where this whole text is pointing us is to that kingdom. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to live into his kingdom in the here and now. What ethics, what hearts What promises, what hopes, what would drive God's people? How might things be different if we were trusting in his sacrifice for us? If we actually believe that he was dead, dead, buried, and rose again on our behalf and that changed us and we really did die to ourselves and we're taking up our cross and we're trusting him for what seems impossible, if all that's happening, then how do we live into his kingdom? This is pointing us to a way of being and living that is a new creation. I read a commentary talked about in a car oftentimes there's like a manual and in that manual it'll give you instruction like if you skid out on ice what do you do and if you have a flat tire what do you do and if you have a car wreck how do you report that not because the car is designed to do that but because those things will happen so when we encounter God's word what's kind of helping us manage this world it's not because we're settling for this world our eyes are aimed to what he actually designed and in this illustration this commentary said because Jesus came to like build a better car to, to give us any little, little nerdy anti-lock brakes and all the things, right? To kind of have a person whose heart is being redeemed and transformed because into that hardness of heart, don't forget the Messiah came to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. The Bible describes us as an adulterous people. Jeremiah 3 says that God has grounds for divorce to his unfaithful people. And instead of following through what was his legal right to do, he came into our world, died in our place, absorbed the penalty of our sin to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh to regenerate us, to give us hope that what seems impossible could actually be accomplished in the kingdom of God through who God is and what he came to do for us. That's where this text is pointing us. I know you have questions. I know you have pain. I don't want to sidestep any of those would love to walk in them, but I want you to hear as we come to communion what communion is about. That the groom came to die for the bride and make a way for us to follow after him. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I want to pray over you, but just give you a second to take your take a deep breath. In a moment, Christians, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. The way we do that is we come forward, we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be gluten-free here in the middle and then all the aisles will have a station. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to invite you to stay in your seat. This is the good news of why Jesus came. It's good news for you. But communion's for those who are already trusting him. If that's not you, just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to talk to him. And then if you want to talk about trusting Christ, I would love to do that. But, but if you're not trusting him, stay in your seat. If you are trusting him, come. And would you come this morning with an acute awareness of this future wedding feast of the Lamb where this groom who we were unfaithful to kept his covenant to us made it possible for us to be forgiven and set free. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we ask now for you to come.